Oh, hi. It's Crystal here, your favorite hairy lady from RuPaul's Drag Race UK Season 1, and the mermen in Madonna's Cherish music video made me queer. Welcome to The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that explores queer identities using the pop culture and personal moments that shaped us. Each week, I will interview a special guest who will bring a person, a place, a piece of music, a film or TV series, and a wild card that helps them understand, accept, or embrace their queerness. Fabulous! This week's guest is super special. We first met in a hotel room somewhere in London. No, it's not what you think. This was the day before I walked into the workroom on season one of Drag Race UK, because my guest this week is the co-founder of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey. I'm sure everyone listening knows that World of Wonder is the production company behind the Drag Race empire. But Fenton has had a super interesting life long before Drag Race went mainstream. For example, did you know he and co-founder Randy wrote and directed the iconic film Party Monster? Run and watch that right now if you haven't seen it. Um, He was also in a pop group called The Fabulous Pop-Tarts. And if you've seen Party Monster, you definitely know their song Money, Success, Fame, Glamour, which is an iconic track. Anyway, I can't wait for you to hear all about his life. I think this was a really cool chat and a great perspective that I haven't had on the podcast yet. So I'm sure you're going to love it. As always, don't forget to leave a comment or Apple podcast review to share the podcast and to subscribe on Spotify. It all helps. I mean, I know you're not going to because I used to ignore these requests when I listened to podcasts too. But you know, it's worth a shot. Anyway, on with the episode, and welcome to the podcast, Fenton Bailey. Hey, Fenton. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. You know, I basically invited myself on this show. You know, I I have a feeling that was never your desire to have me on. But I was like, I insist. I want to be on this show. Uh, I absolutely love it. When I got the email saying that you wanted to get on, I was so flattered. Oh, please, please. (laughs) No, seriously. This is your charity case episode. Not at all. (laughs) Honestly, I think this is such a cool, um, a cool full circle moment. And I got a little nervous. Oh, it's a little bit like interviewing your boss. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but hey, okay. <laughs> Not quite. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's like, you know. Uh, are you in LA at the moment? I am. Yes, in LA. It's a lovely, lovely sunny day. Gorgeous. Well, I'm so glad you're here, Fenton, and thank you for making the time. Should we get into the things that made you queer? Yes, let's do it. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled and excited. Yes. Yeah, so you know how it works. It's like Desert Island Dicks, isn't it? That's, That's a, a, That was the alternate title for this series. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I definitely stole this idea directly from Desert Island Discs. There you go. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. It's an iconic series, so. It, yeah, it works. Film or TV series? Um, okay, so up first, Fenton, it is your film or TV series. And you have given Batman the TV series, mm. the Adam West version. 
Well, no, it's a very important distinction because, you know, all the subsequent reinventions of Batman with, you know, who was it who played Batman first in the... Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, yes. You know, when they tried to make Batman this serious, dark, mm. split personality, I was like, that is so wrong. That I was so profoundly disappointed because... Um, you know, the Batman I knew was like prancing around with his underwear on the outside and, and with the lovely <laughs> ward by his side and these lovely silk capes. Just so, so, I mean, you know, obviously it was pre-sexual because I was only six, but it, it sparked something in me. You know, I became wildly overexcited when it came on. So excited <laughs> that my parents actually banned me from watching it for a period of time. Really? What would happen to you? I think I just you know, in a very non-British way, just sort of hyperventilated and expressed emotional <laughs> engagement, which is just so not done. <laughs> uh, so where are we in at this moment? We're in Southampton? Is that where you're going? Oh, no, we're in Gosport. Yes, we're in Gosport. And um, I'm sitting in the basement of our home. Uh, my dad's an architect and he built this split level home and there's a sort of the basement is called the pandemonium room. I mean, oh my God, um, why are you cool? But, but, but in the basement, we had one of the first color TVs. And so seeing it in color, I mean, the colors were so whack. It was so, so mm. bright and super saturated. And I love that. Yeah. I watched it again the other day. Um, someone very kindly for my birthday gave me a whole set of, C of uh, DVDs. And never having watched it literally in... 30, 40 years. I mean, it was incredibly slow. It wasn't like, it was achingly slow. But, right. You know, I persevered, but because it was so radical at the time. And I remember at the time it was considered very subversive. It was considered dangerous, you know, making kids walk up walls, you know, was, was the anxiety uh, and people thinking they could fly. And that was considered dangerous. The, the idea of color TV was considered dangerous. And right. if you sat, too net near to the set, you'd go blind. I mean, just the whole, and you look at it now and it looks so stately and innocent. You know, how it could have been perceived as a dangerous drug that was coming for your children. I don't know, but it felt like it. Well, maybe all of the ills of modern society actually are down to Batman. Maybe it was <laughs> dangerous and that's the that's why we're in right. this mess. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. You're probably right. <laughs> um, I feel like it's, it's definitely had like a huge cultural impact that series like Adam West as Batman has been mocked for years since I mean the the family guy stuff and then it's like the beginning of gay Batman and Robin like that's where all that came from yeah there was so much of a uh a sort of erotic energy between the two of them. I mean, just the outfits alone. I mean, mm. what were they thinking? Well, of course, they were just doing the comic, but it was just the idea of in real life seeing people in that. I mean, Robin's yellow satin cape just got me going. And then he had those <laughs> green scaly underpants. Oh, and those little ankle red red sort of pirate boots. I mean, I'm sorry, but I thought it was pretty fabulous, pretty yeah. hot. Yeah. I mean, that is a look now that you're describing it. I, I'd never thought of it as satin. And that really, yeah, because it had a slinky feel to it. I mean, mm, a sheen. It did. It certainly <laughs> did have a sheen. And then the mask. I mean, very eyes wide shut, and and just oh, oh, and the gloves with like um, fa uh, talons on them. I mean, mm -hmm. the whole thing was like just screaming 
Pop, Camp, S&M, all in one go. The other, the other superhero I had a wild crush on was Spider-Man because yes. his outfit was, you know, with the the face with the web. I actually tried. To, I did make my own Spider-Man outfit of like I got a fishnet and like strung it under my arms and leapt around the garden. Did you continue being fascinated by superheroes? I, yes, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Marvel comic universe. Mm, I think it's one too. of the most significant achievements of culture of the 20, 21st century. And I'm just watching Loki, the the new Marvel mm-hmm. series. It's so good. I mean, and I just, I'm just so sort of in awe of the achievement of like taking all these superheroes and these comics from the 50s and 60s that were just considered trash and then creating a whole universe in which they harmonically coexist together. It's just... I think it's a towering achievement and and profoundly underrated. And I just love the love the fact that you know Marvel, after years of licensing their movies to studios and watching the studios fuck them up and just being, they just did it themselves. It's very punk. Um, yeah, I feel like this could equally be applied to probably your life story to a degree um, with World of Wonder. I th- yeah, that I'm seeing some similarities. Well, in a, in a modest way, I mean, you know, sure. Marvel Comic Universe is vast. And yes. I think also, by the way, very smart of Disney to have bought them, you know, rather than sort of see them as competition. They just were like, yep, we'll take that. Because Disney's mm-hmm. also the same same sort of mindset, I think, of you yeah, sort of we'll build something all. in every different dimension. Yeah. 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 Um, just back to Batman for a second. I feel like mm. I hadn't connected this before, like the campness of it. But actually, when you think about the late 90s versions of Batman, when you go back to George Clooney and Batman and Robin, you're kind of getting back to that stupid version of batman the fun the silly the camp the ridiculous the uma thurman is poison ivy the nipples on the breastplates because that was definitely one of my sexual awakenings um oh really yeah uh joel schumacher Mm -hmm. fabulous notorious gay director who slept with claimed to slept with i I can't remember how many thousand people but he was the guy responsible for the nipples on robin's suit and he did batman and robin which was which was pretty camp and universally panned wasn't it yeah but i think you need to go right back to the real sort of cavorty almost pantomime version of the 60s right right i love that well something i need to revisit for sure Mm. yes definitely recommend it and how you're six at this time so like how are you how are you as a child what what's that like are you a camp little boy I think I was, you know, my mother used to say to me, rest her soul, she used to say, when I was like a teen, she said, you used to be such a happy little boy, like, <laughs> with such a sort of sadness. Um, and I suppose I was, I was just really happy. And um, I mean, obviously, looking back on it, I think I was queer as the day is long. But I didn't know it. And I had no concept that queer might be problematic from a it wasn't problematic for me, but from everybody else's perspective. So all that misery and anxiety came later. And I think that's what my mother was referring to. Because it took me a long time to come out. Because I thought I was so quick. Why would I need to come out? It's so obvious. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was, uh, even when I was in a, with Randy from World of Wonder in a band called The Fabulous Pop Tarts on stage in a gold lame toga, like, <laughs> why did my parents not think I was gay? So when they, when I told them finally, age 35, they were like, oh, really? Really, 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 darling? They were so surprised. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> Willful blindness. There you go, yes. Um, 
And so that wasn't a part of your life that you, I mean, we're probably going to come to all of this later, but that wasn't a part of your life that you kept hidden from that at all. Right. Because I didn't know it was a thing. Didn't right. I didn't know it was a thing. And I didn't know if it was a thing that it was a thing to hide. You know, right. it, it just didn't. I mean, I don't know when I first even became aware of queer as a thing. Yeah. There's an innocent stage to it, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's the kind of tragedy of queerness, isn't it? That we lose that innocence mm. once we realize. I mean, maybe that's just humanity. It's like it's like original sin for straight people, but for us it's for us it's like realizing we're the we're not the same as everyone else. You know what? Absolutely right. And I think that that's what was so great about Lil Nas X's Montero. You know, mm. it was it, it clothed it all in these biblical terms that I think do resonate. It is, I, I think being gay is original sin for queers, isn't it? That's, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, and I wonder if it would be like that if, if it wasn't for all the homophobia out there, you know, because I was quite, I really was quite happy. It never struck me that there would be anything odd or weird or queer about it. Yeah. And maybe that's why my parents didn't like Batman and Robin, you know? <laughs> maybe they thought it was unsuitable, you know? Yeah. Not because it was, like, too colorful. Or maybe it was too colorful and too fun, and those are the sort of... That's often what gay culture and sensibility is, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it took you until your 30s to come out to them. Were you getting messages from them to, like, button up and straighten up? No. Um, my mother, I mean, my mother was basically Tammy Faye Baker. Okay. I mean, she was lovely. She was gorgeous and camp. And which, you know, I would understand your next question might be, well, tell me about your father. <laughs> um, but <laughs> my dad was uh, a, a, an architect and he wore these very flamboyant ties. And but but I think he was very anti-gay. And I think I think he realized quite uh, he realized what i knew that he had a gay son and he wasn't very it wasn't that he wasn't happy about it he just didn't know what to do about it and he was as a result very emotionally distant mm -hmm. and i remember saying to my mom when i was 13 or so I, I was like why doesn't my dad like me and she was like nonsense of course he likes you but he there was this distance and this coldness from him mm -hmm. um and i i've never really been able to figure it out or even talk to him about it because you know, those British families, you know, mm -hmm. we don't do Oprah so well, you know, yeah. and we just didn't ever talk about it. And he, um, weirdly, he wanted, you know, his, he ended up being an architect, but I think he wanted to be a set designer and be in Hollywood. And you'd think that given that I am in Hollywood, that we would have such a close bond, but we're like strangers. It's a weird thing. And I, I, you know, I have a, I have my suspicions about my dad in the Navy and the war. Right. I think, but I think it's all very, you know, and he's never going to talk about it or acknowledge it or closed book. Yeah, it's tough, those relationships. I know my mom, who's British, has that with her dad. It's very, like, everything stays quite surface level. And I'm married to a British man who has a bit of that with his family as well. It's hard to get into the, the nitty gritty. Whereas my dad is a Canadian hippie who just wants to talk about his feelings all the time. So I, I do struggle when I encounter that. And I mean, I'm glad that you could have it with your mom, if if not with both your parents. That's why I had to come to America, I think. Right. There was no, I couldn't have lived in the UK. It was stifling and impossible mm. for me mm. anyway. Um, 
Let's move on to your next item, because maybe this is going to be the key to your queerness. Maybe we'll just remind you of it. Music. Um, So up next is your album or song, and you've given Rocky Horror Picture Show soundtrack. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, I... I wasn't aware of the Rocky Horror Show when it was on in London because it started in London as a sort of uh, sort of fringe type performance thing, mm-hmm. and I wasn't aware of it. I must have heard something about. I think my sister went to see it. She lived in London, but my first chance to experience it was to see the movie, the Rocky mm-hmm. Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I loved it! I was like, <laughs> this is amazing. I mean, it was like, and by this point. 1975, I was aware of queerness and, um, and it was all bound up in that, um, sorry, I don't know. Can you hear the dog in the background? Vaguely, but that's it's Dorothy. I'm gay. So I have a dog with Dorothy. <laughs> Tell me you're gay without telling me you're gay. <laughs> so I already knew that I, um, where I'm going with this, it's, I just loved Frankenfurter. I just thought he was the most fabulous character, you know, fishnet tights and high heels. And I already knew that the idea of dressing in women's clothes or wearing eyeliner, these were sort of signs of gayness and incredibly decadent. That's, I think that was the sort of the sense that queerness was a problem. It was a problem, not least because in Britain, it was illegal. You'd go to prison mm-hmm. for one thing. But Allied with that was the sense that it was dangerous and decadent and forbidden, and for that reason, good. Mm-hmm. So that even though socially you were seen as pathetic and sick and, you know, a criminal, that was the sort of public look version of queers. Underneath it was far more sophisticated and swishy and decadent. And, and that's what I embraced. So when the Rocky Horror Picture Show came along, I was like, Oh my God, this is it. This is totally amazing. And I just loved it. And of course, playing the soundtrack to my friends at school and playing it to parents and, you know, sweet transvestite would just get people all in a, it would just have the desired effect. It would freak people out, you know, yeah. in a way that at the time, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Pink Floyd, you know, you had all this heavy concept rock, you know, it was very pompous mm-hmm. and it really wasn't that interesting. And then you had the fucking Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, it was like, <laughs> this was, it. I mean, I suppose the closest thing in music to Rocky Horror was Elton John, you know, and what yeah. he was doing with Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and, and all that. Benny and the Jets. It was very like that, I felt. Yeah. Yes. How old are you at this time? I'm 15. Okay. Yeah. So is this yeah. maybe, I mean, when you saw Frankenfurter, is, did you mm. see yourself? Was that like a, was, was there some light bulb moment there? Or maybe you already oh, definitely. knew it? Yeah. I mean, I've never told anyone. I was at boarding school and I'd already got some kind of catalog for fetish underwear, like ladies lingerie. Uh-huh. And I'd already like, gone off one weekend on my bicycle and bought eye, blue eyeshadow at Boots. So shit was going on with me. Right. Yes. You know, um, and um, yeah, I knew the path I was headed down. And it's interesting because at the same time, there was a at this boarding school, which um, the other sort of, um, it's almost a sort of opportunity for companionship was the sort of the Christian 
organization. And so for a while, I was really into that. You know, um, Christian fundamentalism is a bit, you know, it was like Bible reading and prayers, and you'd hold hands in a prayer circle and things like that. But I suppose looking back on it, well, it was a real crossroads moment for me because I was like, well, hang on a second. The reason you really like going to these prayer meetings is to hold hands with other boys. It's not because you're, it's not because you're praying. Um, you know, I think of like uh, tainted love, right? You think love is to pray, but I'm sorry, I don't pray that way. That, that was like, I was really in the, at that crossroads. And I, I realized after a point that actually I wasn't. Uh, a believer, you know, a Christian believer, and that um, I was gay and that I thought that actually, I remember lying in bed thinking, well, if, you know, being gay is criminal, um, you know, God then doesn't want you to be gay. So I was like, well, fuck God. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was that, I mean, it was a little more complicated, but it, that's the outcome in the end. I was like, well, screw that. And, and I think subsequently I can see that, you know, the harm religion does is just pretty infinite, the yeah. suffering and the bloodshed that it causes. So I think I made the right choice. I can imagine it could have been a real, a Christian youth group as a young queer could be quite a nice escape because the, the preaching of abstinence is like a great get out of jail card for having to like think about sexuality. And like if your teenage peers are all having sex with girls and and you, right. you know that could be a, a nice easy out for a little while it could you're right you're right but it's slightly different because at an all boys boarding school no one's having sex with girls number oh, right. one of course um and number but they are having sex with each other and the whole thing is incredibly satanically it's all framed as sin and you're going to go to hell and so the moment you become sexually aware it's always framed in these terrible terms of mm. fire and brimstone and yet there is this sort of weird group where you can be loving and loved. It, it's it's so confused and tangled up. And then you add into the fact that often the the the, the ministers who taught divinity were queer themselves mm -hmm. and were like putting the moves on the boys. So the whole thing is really a confusing situation. And I think it took a long time to feel that sex is isn't a bad thing or isn't an evil thing, which is such a weird, I mean, way to generations and centuries of upbringing have taught us you know it's the christian way isn't it that sex is bad <laughs> yeah like... yeah and i guess in some ways i feel like the uk is a little bit more forward thinking than that i don't know i don't i don't know if it's because all the puritans moved to the us and to canada but <laughs> <laughs> um I, I do feel like there's a lot more forward thinking on in that regard and mm. that's something that I really appreciate about the UK. I think it I think you're right, but I think it's there's pockets. It's always an uneven thing in reality. Yeah. And the, the you know, the boarding school I was at, it wasn't considered a, a, an okay thing by any means and mm -hmm. people were expelled all the time for it and um and no one talks there was no one there was no one talked about it. That's the other 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 than, you know, it's this terrible sin and you'll be sorry, you know. I think it's much better now. Definitely. I wonder if there will be a generation now, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but a generation coming up that won't have any shame around gay sex. They might still find, there might still be shame, but, and I think there maybe always will be when you realize that you're a little bit different from everyone else. But, you know, there maybe there won't be that fire and brimstone association like there was when mm -hmm. I was growing up and when you were growing up. 
I know and it changes all the time, doesn't it? It's so hard to know. Maybe though, also, I mean, I think that sort of queerness is so to some degree present in all of us that the the sort of stigma is that why should we feel we're different from everyone else? I don't actually think it's taken a lifetime to realize that actually I don't think we are that different from anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that everyone wants to have gay sex, <laughs> but I think there's enough a little bit of queer in everyone and whether or not they honor that, that's the problem, I think. Oh, I, you know? I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that's why the mainstream society shames queer people is because they mm. are a little bit so true. titillated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was a study that came out recently saying that something like 30% of people today don't identify as heteronormative, which I think is really interesting because, you know, when we were growing up, the studies were, it was like 2% are queer. And even the idea of the question has changed. The idea mm-hmm. that you don't identify as heteronormative and suddenly you get this figure, 30%, that's a lot of, that's a lot of people. That's, Huge. Yeah, sure. It's still a minority, but it's not a minor minority it's not two or three percent you know yeah huge and i think a lot of people will say that's a fad and it's a teen thing and they want to fit in and do what's cool but that openness is so powerful i think Mm -hmm. and that number of people being open to the idea that that's a possibility in their lives means that for the people if you know even if nothing ever happens it creates so much more space for everyone else who will eventually go down that route. It's I think it's wonderful. Agreed, totally. So you you're cycling off and buying blue eyeshadow and mail ordering women's lingerie. <laughs> Are you telling anyone about this or is it like a dirty little secret? Um it's not a dirty little secret. It's a secret. I think I had one friend um and I did it with him and but I have to say it didn't I I don't think the eyeshadow or the fishnets really stuck with me i mean i did i did uh do i'm at a you know like the school play it was an all-boys school and so you know when we do it we do our shakespeare plays and mm-hmm. so boys had to play girls which was fine totally fine with me and <laughs> i was so excited because in midsummer night's dream i got to play titania Lovely. the queen of the fairies yes. in fact i have a visual aid this is here i am as titania wow. queen of the fairies wait I'm trying to find the bottom. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, I've, yeah. I've, I was in Midsummer Night's Dream as well. Who did I play? Lysander. What a queer, I mean, very queer play. <laughs> very, very queer. Very queer play. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way, weirdly, like the paradox was I was kind of bullied at boarding school. And, you know, because it was, I was pretty quickly identified as, a fag and um but weirdly even though i was bullied and sort of had a horrible horrible time i was kind of defiant mm-hmm. in a way that uh i didn't really feel at the time but just the fact that i would play titania queen of the fairies when i was just known as the school fag I, i'm pretty amazed that i don't know that i would have the balls to do that today to be honest yeah that's you know? that's incredible i guess at some point if you're being bullied you might as well just say fuck it yeah, but I don't think it was like, it wasn't conscious. It was just like, I, maybe I'm not, I don't think I am that courageous, actually. I think it was just, well, this is what I'm going to wear. This is what I do. It wasn't like a fuck you. It was just like. I am the queen of the fairies. What am I, I am saying? the queen of the fairies, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the role chose me. 
There you go, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So when did you first tell someone, do you identify as a a gay man? Sorry, I normally ask this at the beginning of the episode. I was like, how dare you? Um, <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I mean, it, it, that, uh, I have to say, I was always quite shy about identifying. I, I think I bought into a lot of the sort of internalized homophobia that, you know, I am gay, but it's not the only thing about me. Mm-hmm. So why do I have to be like that? You know, mm-hmm. um, but living in New York in the East Village in the 80s, it was very much, you know, with AIDS and ACT UP and Out Week. It was very much like you had to change your thinking there. and. Mm-hmm. And I did, but it was it was gradual process. I, I went on an AIDS march, act up march, and I was so we had to lie down in the middle of a street and pretend to be dead, and I was mm-hmm. just so embarrassed and mortified and sort of, you know, shy about that whole thing. It took me a long time to sort of embrace that. What? Because you might be seen there with other gay people, or no, you... no, not at all. Just but but just the sort of um, I think I was a sort of interesting i expressed myself in a queer way i expressed myself through art and creatively queer but the idea of being an activist almost seemed rude or just inappropriate you know people would suddenly say oh i have no problem with gays why do we have to shove it down our throats mm-hmm. and i sort of think i was sort of part of that mentality of like we just got to be nice you know if we want people to accept us and love us we've, mm-hmm. we've got to be nice and not be too demanding or you know mm-hmm. rude yeah it's fucked up i know but well but it's it's incredibly common mm. like it's something i think that all minorities have it's the way i guess you learn with. to embrace your repression right yeah yeah being the good minority and um there you go yeah, yeah. and yeah feeling like you're not worthy of the broader society's acceptance unless you change something about yourself yeah Absolutely. Well, shall we move on to your next item? Yeah. Person. And your next item is your person. Um, And you've given Quentin Chris, um, as played by William Hurt in The Naked Civil Servant. I mean, that really, seeing that film... So Quentin Crisp, right, was the stately homo of England. That was his own description of himself. And he's a gay guy, right, who grew up in England, I guess, came of age during World War II Mm -hmm. um, and eventually moved to the U.S., where he became kind of famous in the last years of his life, you know, I guess in his 70s and 80s as a sort of. You know, he became this sort of cultural icon. And in 1975, I think, they made this film, The Naked Civil Servant, based on one of his books. And uh, John Hurt, right? Yes. William Hurt. John uh, Hurt played John Quentin Hurt, Correct. And I saw it on TV and it was trans. It was like, ah, this is what I, this is, this is who I am and this is what I need to do. Because <laughs> in the arc of the show, he moves to America. And it was absolutely clear to me that after watching that, what I needed to do was go to America. Whatever it took, didn't matter what I was going to do that. I, that's, that was my plan, like literally after seeing that. And um, I just thought he was so fabulous. I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes is, it, it's, have you seen it? I ha- well, I've, so I hadn't ever seen it. And I started watching it today. And I didn't finish yet. But I've seen the oh. first half now. And it's so fucking queer. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. You almost might not see it on TV today. I, it's crazy. It's crazy. I can't believe that was on what ITV in the seven mm-hmm. in the seventies. Yeah. It was sort of part of that sort of play for today mentality, which is when they would put on BBC and ITV would put on these very cerebral, challenging plays. You know, I, I think it was sort of part of that. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where he's in London with some other what they were called fluffs. Mm-hmm. Other fluffs, basically in Soho, in a tea shop, probably Valerie's, right? Right. And these roughs come in and beat up all the queers, mm-hmm. and this uh, and this tough guy shoves Quentin Crisp, who's got beautiful red hair and wearing a necktie, not, not a necktie, a sort of kerchief or something. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, Ascot, wearing an, an ascot. ascot. There we go. Uh, <laughs> and makeup and 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 they're like he shoves him up against the wall and he's like literally about to strangle him. And Quentin Chris says, Why don't you fuck off back to Brighton before they find out you're queer? Mm-hmm. And it was such a I like, oh my god, this guy's about to get the shit beaten out of him. And he says that to mm-hmm. this guy, and the, the skinhead, you know, immediately like drops him in revulsion and, and it worked. And and it was this just that sort of Defiance was so inspiring. And there's another great moment where during the war, he talks about how American um, Navy officers and, you know, the, the, the fleet was over. And so that he was in Portsmouth, which is funny enough where I was born. And so Quentin Chris would go cruising along the, the seawall at night and he picked up this American and they're lying in bed together. And the American turns to him and says, do you want to have another piece of gum and we'll do it again? And I just thought that was so fabulous because it was so, it was like queer sex, but without the sort of shame and the sort of furtiveness. It was like lying in bed, let's have another piece of chewing gum and do it again. I was Mm -hmm. like, yes. So I was like, I I was like, yes, America. Yes. America. It's incredible. It is incredible that that was aired on ITV at that time. Like you say, I feel like it took another 30 years before, before, Queerest Folk, not 30, 20 years before Queerest Folk was out. And that probably discussed things just as frankly, but like, I can't think of many things in the, in the middle bit. You're right. There wasn't very much. And also, I think also what was even now ahead of its time is it championed the sissy. And I think that Mm. the sissy, you know, in Queerest Folk, there wasn't much room for a lot of sissies either. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Again, you know, in the other sort of play for today or Jean-Paul Sartre adaptations, there were there were queers, but they were always committing suicide mm-hmm. or castrating themselves or coming to some awful end. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, funnily enough, I saw, remember, was Schmiedepus, which was played by Tim Curry. And he, of course, who plays Frankenfurter. Mm-hmm. And he was just so electrifying. I remember seeing it. And even though there was no gay thing in it at all i just like cottoned on to tim curry instantly and he plays this sort of young teenager who shows up at this house saying he's their son and they take him in he said they say he's he's their long lost son and they take him in and he gets more and more creepily involved with the wife and the husband it's sort of you know definitely tim curry's character was sort of playing this sort of queer type uh What's the word? Um, disruptive character. Right. Anyway, and then of course later he would play Frankenfurter, which I guess was a bit of a career stopper for him because he didn't do much after that other than Home Alone, right? 
It's too bad because he's so fabulous. Uh, what else did he? He was in Legend as a very, no, very gay yeah. demon, even yeah. though it's straight. But those he had such a fabulous voice. I'm not often that turned on by voices, but his voice was so. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it. Silky, silky, yes, but silky and seductive and sort of knowingly wanton. Yeah, mm. Mm, that was that was a great description. <laughs> I think that's interesting as well that you described um, Naked Civil Servant as championing the sissies, because you're right, that isn't something that happens often and still probably doesn't happen as often. Um, did you, were you a sissy? Oh, definitely, yes. Definitely, I'm totally a sissy. Yes. I remember like um, wanting to buy a pair of shoes and my mother was like, no, you can't buy those because they're too low cut because they had a, I mean, they weren't high heels. They were just shoes for fucking school, but they, they were low cut around the, the instep. Anyway, they were very low cut. Low cut shoes. What? Like they were showing your ankles. Well, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. (laughs) Instead of what's this part of the shoe called? Mm, I don't know. Okay, so, so they, were like, they basically went low, so that they showed your ankle. Okay, right. And I wore them; they were black leather shoes, and I wore them with white socks. I mean, what the fuck was I thinking? But there was just—I was like, "That's what I want to do." Right. And my mother was like, "Don't you think, with all the problems you have at school, you probably shouldn't do that?" And I was like, <laughs> "No, I, I wanted because to me it was style. That was mm-hmm. it was just I just had to to do that, and then." Remember also, like, this was the era when everyone wore flares. Mm -hmm. Everybody wore flares. But around 1976, that whole change, that whole thing changed. And I went back to boarding school with drain pipes. I went to some old uniform shop and found this old pair of trousers that obviously hadn't sold when peg legs were in. Mm -hmm. And I went back to school with drain pipes. I was the only person in the entire school wearing drain pipes. Wait, what are drain pipes? Tight. Oh, drain pipes. Sorry, they're totally straight. Right. Legs as opposed to flat. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Right. And so so you were the you were the cutting edge fashion icon of the boarding school. Yes, I was. And I'm sure two years later everyone was wearing drain pipes. Well, five years. Right. Yeah. That's well that's that's the gay um that's the gay fashion it's cycle. The gay way. Yeah. Right. We're the early adopters. It's like how the straight men are starting to have mullets again. Right? hmm Give it they'll be everywhere. Okay. So, Quentin Crisp, you're seeing some some sissy representation, and you're thinking this is this is I have to follow in these footsteps. I need to move to New York. I think maybe your next item is going to take us there. So, how did that happen? How did you get to How did you get to the states, and at what age? And tell me about that. It's a terrible story, really. Well, you know, I was at university, and you know, in that last year, people start thinking about their careers and and what they're going to do. And, you know, there's the milk train, it was called the milk train would come round and the banks would, you know, court people, or the MI6 would court people. Um, And, but no no one came courting me. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And it it seemed that the thing you'd have to do, because I was reading English, was go to the BBC. And the thought just filled me with dread because I just thought the BBC was dull, dull, dull. And Wait, what did you study? I studied English literature. Uh, okay. And yeah. BBC was, was the path. Where were you studying? I was at uh, Oxford. Okay. So it was MI6 or the Beeb? 
Well, MI6 didn't want me. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be good material for MI6. It wouldn't be a good spy flouncing around. You know, I dyed my hair blue. You know, it's not right. No, no taps on the shoulder. They want discreet, exactly. (laughs) And I'd edited the the university magazine called ISIS and managed to get it banned because we did a a big expose on the porn industry and we also did one on the anarchist cookbook which taught you how to make your own bomb Mm. so the magazine was banned all the copies were seized so a life in in the establishment probably wasn't going to work for me and i really didn't know what to do and i just didn't want to apply for the bbc it just just felt uh no so but my friend who i was sharing a house with he said um he was applying for this scholarship this this thing called a harkness and I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm applying for this Harkness. And I well, what's that? And he said, well, if you get one, which you won't and which I won't, he said, you get to go to wherever you want to study in America for two years and they pay for absolutely everything. I was like, well, that, that's amazing. So I thought, well, you know, why not? So I filled out the form and applied to study film at NYU and uh hadn't made a film and you had to submit a film that you made <laughs> and made one so i made one which was we did a a version of t.s Eliot's sweeney agonist this is so pretentious <laughs> did a version of t.s Eliot's sweeney agonistes which is one of his short poems and it's just very strange and uh sent it in. anyway long story short i got the i got the fellowship and i got to go to nyu for two years wow. so I'd figured out how I managed to get to America. The terrible part of the story is my friend, who's far more talented than me, really should have gotten it, and he didn't get it. And his mother was furious. She was like, she wrote a letter to him saying that he he should be careful around me. I'm someone who likes to masturbate in public. She didn't mean literally. She meant creatively. <laughs> but my my work, my output was self indulgent. Because <laughs> he he wasn't gay. I think it was code. She was basically right. she was saying you want to stay clear of that faggot. That's what she was saying. Because she was a very high achieving woman in television, you know. And so by all intents and purposes, he was going to get the scholarship. He should have gotten the scholarship. And I just feel badly to this day that because I was living in the same house as him, I just heard about it. I had no idea that these things existed. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but I mean. I think you've used that film degree pretty well since. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't. Out. You yeah. didn't waste it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because did we go on to my next item? We can. Let's do it. Let's go to your next item. I think it's time. Place the Pyramid Cocktail Bar and Lounge. So here's the scoop. So eighty-one, I go to New York to go to film school. And that's where I met Randy, Mm -hmm. literally, who's the Randy and I are the co-founders of World of Wonder. And I met him the first day of school at NYU. And we became friends, friends, special friends, (laughs) friends. but also, you know, the editing class was at like five o'clock on, I forget which day, it's like 5 p.m. And it was like a three-hour class and we'd watch a film and then critique it and i remember what we would do is it it was a little tedious at times so we would slip out when the film began and go to the pyramid for happy hour 
and have a few drinks and then go back to the class <laughs> before the film ended. And, but it was at the Pyramid that I met all these, saw for the first time, I think really saw drag queens for the first time, really. Yeah. First time since Tim Curry. Yes, exactly. Since I found the Rocky Horror Picture mm-hmm. Show in real life. Mm-hmm. Yes. What was the Pyramid? Yeah, tell me about it. I feel like I've heard of it. Is it a bit of an institution? Uh, yeah, it just, funny enough, it just closed during the pandemic, for, uh, closed its doors for good. It was on Avenue A between 6th and 7th Streets. Mm-hmm. And Avenue A then was, a, an, it was Alphabet City. Mm-hmm. It was a no-go zone. Like it was with the crack epidemic. It was just considered really dangerous. And a lot of it was burnt out and abandoned. Now, of course, it's the last word in gentrification, but you couldn't really... You know, it was a very dangerous place to live and dangerous place to go. Mm-hmm. And it was this real hole in the wall place um, where they had, you know, go-go dancers on the bar and the bartender wore a string of pearls with a sort of wife beater t-shirt. I think I think she was called Chelsea Loft. <laughs> and, um, they made the strongest gin and tonics. I mean, it was literally a tumbler of gin with a splash of tonic. And it was where they had these drag shows, you know, Happy Face, Taboo. And then in time, that's where RuPaul and, and Lady Bunny would perform. And an amazing drag queen who was the DJ called Sister Dimension. Mm, great name. Just incredible. It was, it was the, the center of this. Yeah. One of my memories of being there was this kid came in, really cute kid, had blonde, curly hair, just adorable in very ripped up jeans. And he had this, he's, he's a graphic artist, designer, and he had this album cover with him that he just did, did designed. He's sitting at the bar showing it to people. And, and the person on the front, I didn't know who it was, the person on the front was like this, looking like this. And it was Madonna. It was her first album. And he had designed the cover. And he was one of her best friends, Martin Burgoyne. Wow. Who sadly passed away, but that was a... I remember that. Is that the person that she references a lot who she knew yes. who died of AIDS? Yes. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a great song about him. And that album art is gorgeous. I mean, that it that is. really kind of says it all of like what that scene was all about and where you'd found yourself. Had you experienced anything like that in the UK? Or was this your no. this so this was you finding your people? Definitely. I mean, I've been there's a there was a gay bar in Oxford. I can't remember what it's called, but it called Faces or Choices or some <laughs> awful name. That was just a horrible place. Do you know what I mean? There was no there was just no joy there or yeah. no it was just like I actually was a little scared of gay bars, to be honest. Yeah. But, Small town gay bars have to have terrible names, it's a rule. Right. Um yeah, mine was reflections. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which we which we also called rejections, infections, in, injections. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, they are intimidating because I don't know. It feels like you. How do you learn the code? But how do you how do you make it work? But so so you found that in in New York at, at Pyramid, and had you? I mean, you've kind of touched on this a few times, but and I keep going back to it. But you've said you kind of resisted defining yourself as gay is that still happening at this point you're kind of resisting that label i think yes i mean i knew what i was i was happy with it i knew you know i was but you know even though randy and i were together we we didn't let anyone at film school know that Mm -hmm. we were having an affair or that we were boyfriends so even if we'd spend the night together one of us would walk into school first mm-hmm. before the other. Mm-hmm. I'm mean, fuck's sake, we're graduate students carrying on like, 
you know, but it's it's just it it's just the way it was, mm-hmm. and it, there was a sort of this sort of um, I mean, I remember you know the the Pet Shop Boys, you know when I mean I, yes, talk to the Pet Shop Boys. I bet you they'll they'll talk about exactly the same thing. I mean they're a bit older than me, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that idea that you just didn't you just didn't. The activism, the declarative activism of the mid '80s, just—I mean, it was. That's why, in a way, it's so important, and why it was so such a breakthrough. You know that the closet could only exist as long as you were prepared to keep it hidden. Mm-hmm. You know, and theoretically, people could, unlike other minority situations, you could pass in the sense that people wouldn't know you were queer unless you told them. Yes. It wouldn't necessarily be immediately apparent. Although I think in my case, it probably was <laughs> immediately apparent because I, I at this point, this is the early 80s, I had long hair, but I pinned it up like Catherine did. I actually had hair. Um, and I'd like, it was really long and I'd pin it up like Catherine Deneuve and it would hang down in tendrils. Wow. And then I had long earrings with leopards on and, you know, long diamante earrings. I mean... I don't know what. What more do you need? Yeah, and to say I am queer seems so sort of not pedestrian, but just didn't seem as much fun as wearing your hair up and yeah. wearing a string of pearls. That seemed to be more to the point. Well, labels can be useful, can't they? But they can also be limiting. Right. Right. Do you think it took then kind of that the ACT UP movement and silence equals death and all of that to kind of drag you out of that? And yes. is that Yes, because it wasn't being dragged out of it. I think I love the way you say drag you out of that, because it was being dragged out of a, a mindset that wasn't necessarily the closet, but it was sort of closeted somewhat, mm-hmm. you know? And I think one of the great contributions of, of ACT UP actually is was to put an end to that and to really put a knife, it, it, quite apart from the incredible progress they made in getting a treatment for AIDS and, and dealing with that. I think they also had this huge cultural impact in terms of, openness and the realization that we really do need to be open and visible to people for people to not just tolerate because i think tolerate i mean that was the word then to be tolerated and who on earth would ever want to put up with being tolerated it's so awful but that was the word you know that was the way people talked about it and and it took a moment to to see that that was unacceptable yeah and and so I really think they play a huge role in in changing the, the whole cultural placement of gayness, you know? That seems so obvious to me hearing you explain it in that kind of linear way, but it's something that I've never really connected before. So um, thank you for that. That's a really... Well, it's funny. It's so funny how history, things happen and you kind of, it's so hard to remember what they were like before they yeah. before they changed. And you just do take it for granted, rightly so, because how can you know? But it was, I remember, for example, as being a boarding school, so much of this is about boarding school, but <laughs> being a boarding school when Jeremy Thorpe's mm-hmm. accomplice shot the dog on Dartmoor. Remember this story? Mm-hmm. So it's been dramatized in A Very British Scandal and Hugh Grant okay. plays... Jeremy Thorpe. Oh, it's a fantastic story. So Jeremy Thorpe, liberal leader of the Liberal Party, who were at one point when the Conservatives and Labour were sort of, the, this is sort of early 70s and everything was going to hell in a handbag. This was pre-Thatcher. Mm-hmm. The Liberals were the great hope, political hope. They were going to be the party. And they were led by this extraordinarily charismatic man, Jeremy Thorpe. 
I mean, there was no question that he was going to be the future prime minister. He's young, dynamic, fabulous, you know, stuffy old conservatism and communist labor, all that was like the liberals. But Jeremy Thorpe was gay. And obviously, because needed to be closeted. And he made the mistake, I guess, of hooking up with this guy, Norman Scott. And Norman Scott was kind of damaged and it was just a bad, a, a, a misalliance, if you will, like in the sense that Norman Scott wanted money from him, needed support, had a lot of issues, none of which were probably his fault, but just, you know, part of being, you know, part of the sort of climate. And so Jeremy Thorpe tried to keep this relationship with Norman Scott a secret, mm-hmm. and things escalated until insanity upon insanity, he hired a person to take Norman Scott out and shoot him on Dartmoor in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, really? And, and he, um, <laughs> he, he, it all went wrong. And the guy ended up just shooting Norman Scott's Great Dane. And the story might never have come out, but it gradually bits and pieces came out and was this huge scandal. And Jeremy Thorpe was put on trial, blah, blah, blah. And that was the end of his career. Wow. Wow. It's a great drama. It's a great book and a great series that came out a few years ago. Yeah, I'll check it out. Wild card. Your last item is your wild card, and you couldn't choose. So you've said David Bowie or Andy Warhol, but I think we can probably talk about them both and maybe both because they actually have a connection. Um, David Bowie wrote a song called Andy Warhol. He sure did. Was on. Um, but uh, yeah, David Bowie was like my brother who was an architecture student and very cool. Uh, 10 years older than me, but just taught me everything I know. He turned me on to David Bowie and came along one weekend, came home with this, this record, Hunky Dory. Mm-hmm. And... I was like, oh, my God, what is this? I mean, life on Mars and um, kooks and uh, just began this long experience of David Bowie. You know, so many people talk about that 1972 performance of Starman on Top of the Pops, mm-hmm. where he looked in, you know, looked down the camera lens and everybody just sort of freaked out. But I think Bowie gave me so many moments of sort of queerness there was um, Ziggy Stardust, of course. Mm-hmm. Even, even honestly, Man Who Sold the World, an album that came out before he was mega famous, was plenty gay. Yeah. Um, Aladdin Sane. I remember my, my parents gave me uh, Aladdin Sane for Christmas and I put it on and, you know, talks about time, falls wanking to the floor. And my mother was having sort of hot flushes, like, what is going on? You know. Uh, <laughs> Diamond Dogs, oh my God, mm-hmm. you know, uh, under pressure, you know, like Bowie was a sort of a companion through my queer youth, really. Um, I was so disappointed when he said that he wasn't, in fact, bisexual. I yeah. felt so sort of betrayed. But you know what? Who cares? I think it was a brilliant performance. I think his, his whole, everything about him was so inspired. And even if it was a performance, I still think Boys Keep Swinging is an amazing Amazing single, you yeah. know, relatively late in his career. And uh, Randy and I actually at film school made a secret project. One of our assignments at film school was to make a music video. Of course, this was in the day when everything was shot on film, so you couldn't shoot on video. But we made a, we each did our own, but then we did a, 
a special Boys Keep Swinging and just slipped it into the pile un, unannounced. And it freaked people out, you know, because it was us basically nude and doing lots of close-ups. Uh, and uh, again, I don't know what we were thinking or why we did it, but it had the desired effect of, of really, you know, people were like, wow. On yeah. one hand, you're sneaking into school separately. On, on well, the that other. was the end of that. Right, yeah. <laughs> that brought that to an end. Um, so, yeah, I think Bowie was a huge figure. And you'd think, really, that when Bowie met Andy Warhol, that would have been a meeting of great minds and that have had a wonderful time. But actually, it was awful. Apparently, it was the most awkward encounter. Really? Think of anything. He couldn't think of anything to say other than, like, I like your boots. <laughs> and uh, David Bowie thought it was appropriate to do a mime performance, which was just, you know, Andy thought mime was so like old fashioned, like what the fuck. And then, um, and then Bowie played him um, the Andy Warhol song, which Andy found incredibly insulting. And after he left, <laughs> said, "Well, why? I should. You, I, is he allowed to do that? Write a song about me? Don't I get royalties or something?" <laughs> so, so, <laughs> but um, oh, that is a bit tragic. And, and then Warhol, of course, you know, I, I, you know, again, identifying with Warhol was something I did before I knew I was gay, and even before I knew Warhol was gay, because. Let's face it, Warhol was very, as an artist in the art world, he was, I don't think he really did this himself. Maybe he did. But critically, he was desexualized, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that sort of blank, monosyllabic affect of his was interpreted as someone who is asexual, which, of course, mm -hmm. Andy was not. And he was very sexual and very gay. But I, none of which I knew at the time, and none of which I really knew actually until he died, you know, when, when yeah. Well, queer people are often desexualized in, when they're right. famous, just in a, in a bid to make them a little bit more acceptable. Oh, no, absolutely. I made a series in 2000 about Andy Warhol for Channel 4 called Andy Warhol, The Complete Picture. And part of it was, in, in it was John Giorno, a scene in which, um, John Giorno jerks off and comes on his shoes and Andy licks it off. And the commissioning editor was like, mm, can we leave that out, please? It's so disgusting. It's like, mm, no, don't like it. Um, which is shame. We did cut it out, but it's a shame because, mm. you know, that was, that was what was going on. Yeah. But what an important, what a, what a huge figure. I mean, you know. I know lots about David Bowen. I actually don't know that much about Andy Warhol beyond what I feel like everyone knows, but I'm, I also hadn't realized you'd made a film about him. So that's wonderful. Is that on WoW Presents Plus? Um, I, you know, I don't think it is because the Andy Warhol Foundation, the work at the Andy Warhol Foundation is incredibly expensive to clear. Um, right. It was a three-part series in 2000. This is, so this is like, I mean, nothing sounds kind of more New York and queer than being in the 80s and being an Andy Warhol fan. I, how did how did that kind of take you forward? And we've touched on you know your film school and how did I, how did all of the things that we've talked about today like how did that shape you going forward and how did it give you some permission to be yourself? Mm. Well, I suppose it's that thing about role models, which I again being I've never really identified with role models because like what is it's so weird. I mean, what is a role model? But actually, I guess Andy Warhol was a role model. So 
uh, yes, I did meet him once, but it was fleeting. And in a way, it wasn't necessary to meet him for him to be a mentor or a role model. Yeah. You know, I think his work and life were just very inspiring to me, not necessarily to be replicated or copied. I mean, if you could, which you can't, but because just the the, the energy behind it, the, the sort of the ideas that he had, I just think are so profoundly... It wasn't that he understood the times he was in. I think he very much predicted the future. And the, I, I feel that even though Andy Warhol now has been dead for what? 40 years uh and even though you know his his art was at its peak 60 years ago he i feel that we're still living in the world that he described you know mm -hmm. the everyone being famous for 15 minutes is obviously the famous quote but the idea that we're we're all living in a media society and that we're all our own stars and these are things that he figured out and spoke about mm -hmm. So it's really just sort of ends up being a feeling of that you're not as... I think if you're queer, I think one of the downsides... You can feel terribly alone. And I think that uh, whether it was David Bowie listening to David Bowie records or Andy Warhol reading his books or looking at his art, those things made me feel less alone. I think mm. that's that's it. And knowing also that there are more brave, more courageous people who've gone before me. And thanks to them... I can do what I do and I can live the life I lead. You know, I never thought, I never in a million years thought. I remember thinking, thinking to myself, lying in bed at night thinking, you are queer and do you want to be queer? Because you are, whether you like it or not, you are queer, but is that what you want for yourself? And really thinking, no, that is not what I want for myself because I'm going to be lonely. I might end up in prison. It just... You're not going to be loved. And I never in a million years thought that I could get married, that I could have children. These things simply were not possible. And mm -hmm. it is thanks to all in their own different way and in small parts, you know, the Pyramid Lounge and ACT UP and Andy Warhol and David Bowie and Frank and Furder. It's thanks to all those things that all these people have pushed the boundaries forward and made people reevaluate that queerness isn't some sad thing that is an illness that falls on a few people. It's actually something we all can relate to and feel, whether you're actually a practicing gay or not. That sense of being an outsider, that sense of feeling alone, that is, that is human life. That is life. Everybody feels that way at some point in their lives. So rather than demonizing us and penalizing us and god forbid in other countries you know executing us i think queerness is there's something in queerness for everyone and so yeah. all the examples we talked about have, have been you know companions on my journey and they're like teddy bears you know like like a kid with a teddy bear that you hug they're like um security blankets that's mm -hmm. it yeah mm -hmm. i'm I want to give you like a slow clap for that monologue. That was wonderful. I loved yeah. it. Um, it's so, what you said about David Bowie and knowing that there was kind of someone who'd come before you and, and done it. I mean, I discovered Bowie in the early 2000s and I had the exact same experience as that. And it gave me strength and confidence hmm. knowing that he had broken a lot of the molds that I was terrified to break. 
and I just devoured everything that he had ever put out for that exact reason. And it gives you the strength to go on and be confidently yourself and to put yourself out into the world and look at the, look at the work that you've done since then. And the, the huge force that you've had in shaping culture since then. I don't want to blow smoke up your ass, but there's the generational shift that will, will have happened since things like drag race, you know, it's, we're going to be feeling those effects for decades. And well, you know, I mean, I have to say, meeting, I mean, I should have put meeting Rue on one of these as a wild card because it was, there are very few moments in your life where you like, oh my God, I get it. Um, or like when everything changes and meeting Rue was definitely one of those moments because he was so fully realized and so confident and so smart. And really, he was light years ahead of us. And, but we sort of thought, Oh my God, he's, he's a complete star. And he was wheat pasting posters of themselves in Atlanta saying, RuPaul is everything, you know? And yes. And, but, but, uh, but his example and all the queens, I mean, in a way, it's like we didn't do anything. This drag scene, drag is, is such a universal art form. And it's just, a, it's just a, it was just an inefficiency of the culture that it had been mm. overlooked. There was no reason why it wasn't on television. Drag is made for television, you know? Yes. And drag is, as you're born naked and the rest is drag. Who is not born naked? You know, mm -hmm. even Donatella Versace came out naked. She wasn't wearing heels, you know? <laughs> so everything was... we wear is a statement about, you know, Andy Warhol always wore stripes, you know? And everything we wear is a, is a statement about our identity. And so yeah. drag is... It was our good fortune that drag was just overlooked culturally. Do you know what well, I mean? Well, that's a very humble answer, and I'll let you have it. But um, I, I thank you for shining a light and for um, helping me have the career that I've got now. You know, that's just one very small thank you that I can give you. Oh, bless you. I loved this chat. I did too. I'm so glad I invited myself. I couldn't do it more. <laughs> Yeah, you should invite yourself on to more things. I really, I loved it. And um, it's been a really, really, really fascinating look into into your life. And I think your insights have been really wonderful. So I just thank you so much for sharing all of that. It was my pleasure. Thank you and bless you. You are amazing. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug? Maybe give a couple shout outs of some things that people listening should well, check out. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want really, I just want to give a shout out to Randy, who's been we're not partner partners anymore, but we're partners at World of Wonder. And mm -hmm. that really together has been our life work. And he has been such a patient, steadfast friend and companion and co-conspirator. And I think that the, the thing I'm most, that we're both most excited really about plugging at the moment, I mean, in addition to anything Drag Race, but is also, is also WoW Presents Plus, which is our streaming network, which we launched a couple of years ago where we put so much of the stuff we did. Well, for the, it's the home of all things Drag Race. So you can see every single version of Drag Race. And I think there's now 10 of them on WoW Presents Plus, as well as the a lot of ancillary adjacent programming. Mm -hmm. And we're do, it's, it's doing really well. And we're just getting to a stage where we can do more originals. And I'm very excited about that. Painted with Raven. Raven is Ruth, mm -hmm. artist, is a, a elimination competition show that's launching soon. And 
it's what four ninety nine US four ninety nine dollars. So as I say, it's less than the price of a latte, but so much more. <laughs> and there's lots of fab content on there. Yeah. And is there anything on there that you'd like people to check out specifically? Okay, so one thing I think to check out is uh, Born on the Fourth of July. It's a documentary about Nelson Sullivan that Randy and I made in the early days of World of Wonder. But it's a documentary mm -hmm. about Nelson Sullivan, who used to live in the East Village. Uh, he actually lived in the West Village. But he filmed everyone and everything in the East Village for years in the 80s. It's an incredible record that is up on... It's all on YouTube, actually. Um, I think it's called the, the Nine Fifth Avenue Project or something like that. But Nelson really was an inspiration to me and Randy because he just did it. He just had this camera and he just went out and videotaped everything. And his goal was to have a public access show because you can in the States have your own TV show as long as you make it. And mm -hmm. he, he never quite got around to doing it, but that was his goal. And it was such an inspiration to us because it was just punk. It was like, just do it. Don't let, you know, don't let anyone tell you no. And he was, he is just a brilliant record of stuff. So I'd check out that. Yeah. Okay. So you heard it here. Go check out Nelson Sullivan on WoW Presents Plus. Yeah. Fenton, thank you so much for today. I really appreciate it. Crystal, thank you. It was so great to chat. I loved every second. And I can't wait to see you again someday in the flesh. Okay. Well, until next time. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Things That Made Me Queer. If you liked it, please consider giving it a little subscribe or a share on your Instagram stories or a tweet. You know, it all really helps. And I would just love to get these queer thoughts out into the world. Um, I also would love to hear the things that made you queer. So please let me know those in a tweet or a DM and I'll share them on a future episode. See you next week. Until then, I've been Crystal. Stay sparkly, transparent, and cheap. Ooh, and queer too, of course. Our theme song is Something Like Summer by Caveboy. The Things That Made Me Queer is a World of Wonder production.